it's not part of my sermon, but I want to mention to you that uh, there is a really uh, a couple of good articles in this. Uh, there's one laying here, so I'll just take it. Uh, about marriage. We're going to be talking about marriage in different ways today. So I want to encourage you to not just throw that away, but maybe read it. Uh, and I want to also encourage you not to read it during church. That would really make me happy. You know, um, If your head's down, I assume you're praying or something, you know, not reading that. So anyway, thanks for that. Well, uh, Ezra 10, and also this is going to happen in Nehemiah when we get there, but Ezra 10 gives us an opportunity to talk about something that I think is very important for today and needs to be said, especially for our young people uh, when they're looking for somebody to date and to marry. Excuse me, my voice is not not doing well today. It always always puts me in a mind-boggling condition uh, of astonishment and bewilderment, uh, it, it, just, it just mystifies me to no end, and this is what it is. I am utterly baffled, and I am confused when I ask a certain question uh, about a certain issue with certain believers, all right? So I'm talking about a certain question with certain, a certain issue with some believers, And it is when I ask a Christian young person, and sometimes an older believer as well for that matter, if the person that they are dating is a Christian. So that's a simple question, isn't it? Is the person that you are dating, is that person a Christian? And the answer should be yes or no, all right? If the person they are dating is a Christian should mean what I'm I'm talking about is Does that person that you're dating, do they know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior? Do they even know who Christ is? Uh, There are people out there I'm running into all the time who don't even know who Jesus is. I used to just assume that people knew something about Jesus. They don't know that God loved this fallen, sinful world so much that he sent his son. There's not three gods. There's three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They sent the Son to be the savior of the world, and he was born of a virgin, so he's 100% God, 100% man, and he lived a perfect life, and he decided out of obedience to the Father that he would die on a cross and shed his blood so that he would pay for the sins of every man, woman, and child on planet Earth. And if you want to go to heaven, if you want to have your sins forgiven, all you have to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, in your place, on your behalf, and he will save you, and your sins will be wiped away. So I'm asking these young people, and sometimes older people, is the person you're dating a Christian? And what they answer me, uh, somewhat disgustedly with me in my question, they say, yes, he or yes, she goes to church at such and such a church. In other words, pastor, why would you even question me? Because they go to a certain church. And the point is, I didn't ask you what church they went to. I didn't ask where, where they went on Sundays. I asked, is she a born-again believer in Jesus Christ? Does he know Jesus as his personal Savior? I didn't ask what church they went to. I asked, is is she a born-again believer in Christ? Just because someone may attend a church, let's pick mine, just because somebody attends the Evangelical Free Church of Smith Center, it does not mean necessarily that they know Jesus as their Savior. 
So if some guy was uh, coming and he, and he was a born-again believer and he wanted to date one of the girls in our, in our sanctuary here today, or maybe some that are here that aren't, or aren't here that should be, but the point, is, uh, the point is that I'm trying to make is I would tell them make sure she's a believer. Just because they go to our church doesn't mean they're a believer. Uh, they could be somebody faking their way through, or they just never got the message, or they never made that decision. It's not real. I don't care what church you go to. The issue is, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you trusted him as your Savior? Going to any church does not guarantee that that person knows Christ or is a Christian. A Christian is somebody who made that decision. Lots of people in the world who don't know Christ, if you ask them what religion they are, they say, well, I'm a Christian. Uh, they don't understand that you can't be a Christian unless you know Christ as your Savior. Uh, that's just something to be, uh, as opposed to something else, like a Muslim or something like that. They say, well, I'm a Christian. Well, first I want to know if the person is a believer. Then it's okay if I find out what church they go to, because if I find out that, then I know what some of their beliefs might be. And then I might know where theologically this couple might have some trouble later on. But that isn't the foundational issue. Today we deal with a critical and essential issue of should I, if I'm a believer, date and then marry an unbeliever? Uh, the question is not what does, does Pastor Hubbard say, the question is, what does the text of Scripture say? Because this is where we get our information for life and living. Uh, many years ago, an associate pastor in a church in Nebraska was uh, counseling a pre-marriage couple in his church, and he ran into an issue with them that he couldn't, couldn't figure out, and he called and he said, can I bring them down? I said, sure, you can bring them down. Bring them down. So we made an appointment, and they came down here. He came with them. And they brought up the issue that they were having. And as I was sitting there for about an hour, uh, it dawned on me, these, these, these kids, they're just kids to me, these kids don't know who Jesus is. And I thought to myself, well, they go to, their, they go to his church. And, and I know they preach the gospel there, but it was very obvious. And I basically said that to them, you don't know who Jesus is. And could I share with, with you who he is and what he did for you? Both of them trusted, <laughs> trusted Christ as their Savior that day, which was embarrassing to their pastor uh, because he thought he was counseling two Christian kids. And he said afterwards, as they were walking out the door, he said, man, I, I apologize. I should have taken care of that right off. I said, look, brother, if you want to bust people out of your church down here so I can tell them the gospel, you feel free to do it. <laughs> he said, no, I can do it. I said, well, let's do it then, all right? So that's our issue. Now, I want to look at verses 1 to 4 first, and instead of reading the whole chapter, because we're going to do the whole chapter. Now, remember that an issue came up in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, where some people came to him and said this. They said to Ezra, We are not following the law of God. The law says you can't be married to foreign women, women who don't know God, Yahweh, in Hebrew uh, terminology. His, his name is, is Yahweh. They don't know him as Savior. And they've married him. And that's a sin because the Bible says very clearly not to marry outside the faith that is in Israel. And they did it. And they said, we think we need to separate from those wives and their children. Now that's verses 1 and 2 in chapter 9. Now let's read chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. Now while Ezra was praying and making confession, it's about this problem, okay? This, this uh, unequal yoke. Weeping and prostrate, prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children, gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept bitterly. 
So they're feeling the conviction of this sin. Shechaniah said to Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So he's still speaking to Ezra. He says, So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away, that's another word for divorce, to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord, that's Ezra, and of, the, and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. So he further says to Ezra, get up, arise, for this matter is your responsibility. Why? Because he's the spiritual leader of the group. But we will be with you. Be courageous and act. Well, that's going to take some courage, right? These are people, lots of them, who have married outside the faith of Israel, and now they've come together and said, we recognize we have sinned greatly against God. This shouldn't be. You need to take care of it. Do you hear what we're saying? We're saying that there's going to be a lot of people who just came back from Babylon, who are now in Israel, and some of them are going to have to get rid of their wives and their children, and their children. That's what they're asking. So in verses 1 through 4, we learn that prayer may lead people to desire to do the right thing, even if it's hard to do. Now, I want you to understand uh, the commandment. We'll get to that in just a minute. The situation came to light. We have a problem, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And this is why Ezra is praying and weeping and prostrating himself before God and confessing the sins of the exiles. What's the problem? Well, there are exiled men who have married foreign wives, people from Moab, people from the Philistines, people from Ammon and the Amorites and other peoples, all right? Uh, Women who don't follow or worship Yahweh. They're not proselytes. They have not come into the faith of Israel. They have not succumbed to worshiping Yahweh. They're still worshiping Molech and Chemosh and Baal and and other gods of, of the ancient Near East. They don't follow Yahweh, they don't worship Yahweh, and they have no intention to do so. I want you to look back at the law in Exodus 34, 11. Where, and what, we're all, what we're all trying to do is find out, well, where does this come from? Is it really a law? All right, so in Exodus 34, verse 11, it says, Be sure to observe what I am commanding you today. Behold, I'm going to drive out the Amorite before you, the Canaanite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the, I'm sorry, not the Hivite, uh, the Ammonite before you, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself. And make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. In other words, don't make an allegiance with these people, or it's going to end up toppling you. It's going to end up tearing you down. It's going to tear you away from me. So don't do it. Verse 13, but rather you are to tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and cut down their Asherah poles, their Asherim, which is a false god. For you shall not worship any other god. So he's hitting on Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy 5, where we have the Ten Commandments. You shall not have any other gods before you. Don't worship them. So uh, that's, that's what he's talking about here. Uh, you will only worship Yahweh, whose name is Jealous. He is a jealous God. God doesn't want you having your allegiance or me having my allegiance to other gods. All right? Whatever that God is, he wants us to be completely his. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with their inhabitants of the land 
and they would play the harlot, spiritual prostitution, with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and someone might invite you to eat of, the, of his sacrifice, which would show unity and, and uh, worship to that god. And verse, seven, and verse 16, And you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no molten gods. Now what God is saying in spiritual terms, and that's the way we need to take it, in spiritual terms, God is saying, I don't want you prostituting yourself with other gods. Don't join intimately with them. You're supposed to be my people. Now, the other one is in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 to 4. So let's look at that, make sure we got, got that also. When Yahweh your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergeshites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when Yahweh your God delivers them before you, and you will defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me, and serve other gods, then the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. Uh, I didn't keep track of it, but I'm amazed at the number of uh, young ladies that end up marrying non-Christians, and they leave the church. And we could have told them that was going to happen. Uh, whom do we really love? Dr. Nicolation gave this illustration in his commentary. Uh, he titled it this, Whom We Love and Marry Affects Our Beliefs. And that's the issue here at the end of the day. In the film by James Cameroon, the movie Avatar in 2009, the protagonist is a, is a man named Jake Sully. He finds himself in a, a quandary. Although he has been tasked uh, by his commanders to find information that will enable his employer to gain access to valuable material on the moon called Pandora, he soon learns that his employer's plans will endanger the way of life of a group of human-like beings, the Navi, who live there. Jake meets and falls in love with a female Navi. Her name is Natira. And as the story progresses, it becomes clear that his attachment to her is an important factor in increasing sympathy for the Navi welfare. He is eventually initiated into the tribe and marries Natiri. The difference between Jake's employer and the Navi developed to the point where it becomes clear that he will have no choice uh, but to choose to support one or the other. By then, the audience expects that he's going to support his wife's people, which he does. Even praying to the goddess, they worship. Although it is science fiction, we, he says, we as viewers recognize the effect of this romantic attachment and what it, what it has on his beliefs and his commitments, because that is realistic. And that's what we're talking about here. If a man falls in love with a girl who doesn't know Jesus as Savior, uh, she is going to drag him away. I've also seen unbelieving men marry Christian girls. They fell in love with him, and, and I said, you know, why, what are you doing? That, he's not even a believer. It's okay. 
Uh, God wants this, otherwise God wouldn't have brought him in my path, and I wouldn't have fallen in love with him. And I'm saying, no, the Bible says God doesn't want this. God said, no, don't do this. What part of that don't we understand? No, don't do it. And I know one lady that did that, and that was uh, maybe 40 years ago, still struggling today with the fact that her husband hates Jesus, doesn't want anything to do with him, and she loves Jesus dearly, and it's been a war over their children all this time, and she's still hurting today because of it, because of one decision. Well, where pleasing God is concerned, one cannot build a relationship with spiritual darkness. And that's what the Bible says about those who don't know Christ. They're spiritually in darkness. They don't see the truth. And in a marriage, that is certainly a place that it will cause problems. There is no place in church membership for non-Christians. There is no place in Christian marriage for non-Christians. All God wants you to do is marry somebody who knows him so he can bless you with the same master and the same mission in life. That's all he wants. Ezra is trying to reignite the worship of Israel with the holy God, but there is sin in the camp. So remember we talked about the rotten sandwich? Okay, we, we thought we got rid of that, but somebody, they just thrown a slice of moldy cheese in the sandwich, and now Ezra's weeping over it. We've got to fix this. The foreign women do not all become proselytes to Judaism. I want you to know that was a choice. Uh, it isn't an automatic kick out if you're from Moab. It's not an automatic get rid of you if you uh, have lineage in the Perizzites. It's, it's whether when you come for them to find out where you're at, would you trust Yahweh as your Savior and give up your gods? And there were women who said no. Uh, there's an example of that in Nehemiah 13, uh, and we're going to go into Nehemiah when we're done here. Uh, Nehemiah is more of a hands-on guy about the problem. And in verse 23, you see it's happened again. In those days, Nehemiah says, I also saw, I'm in Nehemiah 13:23. I also saw the Jews had married women from Ashdod, now that's Philistine, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So the integration program is, is falling apart. So I contended with them, and I cursed them. It doesn't mean he cussed at them. He brought curses of God down against them, and he struck some of them and pulled out their hair. See, Nehemiah, he's a hands-on leader. Ezra didn't pull anybody's hair out, but you can tell Nehemiah is upset about this, and he's getting their attention, and so we'll run into that later. There is no indication that these women were at all interested in worshiping the true and living God, and that will cause a problem. In this text, there is a layperson who stepped forward to seek resolution and uh, get right with God on this matter. He suggests a covenant be made with them, the exiles, and Yahweh to put away their wives and any children those women have birthed to the couple. He is interested in, in them being compliant with the law. The Bible said it. Why aren't we doing it? The Bible teaches us. Why don't we get it done? His interest is to comply with what God's law says. You know what? How much easier it would it have been if they would have just followed the law in the first place. But sometimes uh, people in love, they get these rose-colored glasses and they don't think about the spiritual side of life being too important or they'll come along, they'll change. Even though Paul said to the Corinthians, how do you know, oh man, that you will save your wife? How do you know, a oh wife, that you will save your husband? There's no guarantee that is going to happen. 
it would have been better if they just would have obeyed the law in the first place and did what was right. Well, we have a lot of young people here that can make the right decision when they get in that situation. Can you imagine how hard this would be? There would be conflict in the community. There's going to be rage, hard feelings, and it raises a great question. I want to be careful how I say this, okay? Who is more important to them? That's the issue. Who is more important to them? Their families who don't care for Yahweh or Yahweh? And the question for us would be, we need to ask is, where is God in our priority list? Who comes first in our priority? Now, you might immediately think, well, you want me to choose God over my family? Uh, the answer is yes and no. If your family is going against God, yes, I want you to choose God above your family. If your family's not going against God uh, and everything is going well and we're worshiping God, there's no choice that you have to make. But God wants to know, first and foremost, will you do what he wants you to do in a situation where you've done wrong or there is evil or there is sin or somebody in your family is in that? Then, yes, we choose God. Listen, those people decided that it must be God in this situation. God is the only one capable of providing blessing in this life, isn't he? The answer is yes. And this is why Shechaniah tells Ezra, be courageous and act. This is not going to be easy at all. If we truly want restoration with God, are you listening to that? If we truly want to get right with God, we need to get serious about our sin. We need to get serious about what we're doing according to what God wants us to do. Choosing God means choosing against sin. And that's what I mean when I say choose God above everything else. Choosing God means, no, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm not going to sin. Dr. Gary Smith said this, and I quote, Something radical has to be done anytime believers make sinful behavior normative. Dr. Douglas Nicolation adds to that, we must be willing to adjust our lives to match God's instruction. Then he says what needed to be said at this point, faithfulness can be gut-wrenching. Faithfulness can be gut-wrenching. So there are times if someone in our family is choosing sin, we choose God. And Jesus warned us, that my coming is going to set father against son and son against father. Not always, but it happens. Let's look at verses 5 to 15. Then Ezra rose and made a, and made, I'm sorry. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priests, the Levites, and all, the, all of Israel take an oath that they would do according to this proposal. So he said, I, I really need your commitment here before we start this. So they took an oath rose from before the house of God, and he went into the chamber of Jehoahan, the son of Eliashib, although he went there or drink water, for he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. What does sin in your heart do to you? Do you cry about it? Does it make you feel bad at all? Ezra didn't even do this sin, but it's making him weep as what has happened around him. They made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the exiles that they should assemble in Jerusalem and that whoever would not come within three days, according to the counsel of the leaders and the elders, all his possessions his possession should be forfeited and he himself excluded from the assembly 
of the exiles. He means that those who worship God. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled themselves in Jerusalem within the three-day period. It was the ninth month on the 20th of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of the matter and because it was heavy rain outside. This is the rainy season. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful, this is where the courage comes out, and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. It's a sin. Now therefore make confession to Yahweh God of your fathers, and do his will, and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. He means those wives who have not become proselytes to Judaism. Then all the assembly replied with a loud voice, That's right. As you have said, so it is our duty to do it. But there were many people, in the, in, and it was the rainy season, and were not able to stand in the open, nor can the task be done in one or two days, for we have transgressed greatly in this matter. Let our leaders represent the whole assembly, and let all those of our cities who have married foreign wives come at an appointed time, together with the elders and judges of each city, until the fierce anger of our God on account of this matter is turned away from us. They recognize God is not happy. In verses 5 through 15, we learn that sin calls for repentance, and repentance calls for a change of direction. Ezra starts by requiring the leaders and then the people to take an oath, proclaiming, we're going to go through with this. We're going to do what God wants. He fasted. He went without food while he prayed, and he mourned over the sin of not being true to God, but taking uh, the direction that led away from God, led away from him. Sin is our choice, and it is always a choice to move us away from God. The people assembled and prepared to uh, take the task on. They decided that the failure of the individual to comply with uh, what they're asking for means forfeiting his possessions and, in effect, loss of his membership in the assembly of Israel. In other words, they would be like a foreigner to them. They assembled and they trembled from the cold rain and from the hard issue at hand. In verse 10, Ezra reminded them of the sin that it was an issue before God. They were unfaithful to God, having married against his will, which had added to the guilt that they had in Israel uh, before God. Now, they're there to restart the whole religious system. That's why they came. And now they've already thrown some mold into the sandwich, if you will. Two wrongs don't ever make a right. But when faced with only a choice between two wrongs, and the reason I said that is because divorce is wrong, and uh, that's what they're about to do, they looked at what the greater good was. When you have a choice between two things and they're both wrong, you choose the best one. And here it was to put away these foreign wives who did not love Yahweh, and in some cases, their children as well. In verse 12, they all agreed that that course of action and Ezra's direction was the right thing. It fits with the, what the Bible says. They agreed that it was too large a task to handle all together in the temple area, especially in the middle of the rainy season. They declared local town officials to be in charge, investigate the people to speed up the process. In verse 14, their goal was to turn away the fierce anger of Yahweh from them. So what they're going to do back home in their town, they're going to go to the leaders and the judges, and the guy's going to take his foreign wife, and they're going to ask her, do you want to believe in Yahweh as your Savior and follow him? And many of them said, 
not in this life. That's not happening. And so they gave them a legal writ of divorce. There was a small handful of dissenters, but they didn't stop the progress of what the, what the nation wanted to do. So the investigation was underway. Women had to decide, will I become a proselyte to Judaism or will I remain true to the God of my own people? Uh, there was a Moabite girl who did that. Let's go back to Joshua Judges Ruth. Let's go to Ruth chapter 1. Naomi's daughters both, uh, I'm sorry, Naomi's sons both married women who did not belong to Israel. They were not of the faith. Ruth was one of them, and she had a sister who was also not of the faith. In Ruth 1, 12 through 18, after the boys had died, she finds out there's food in Israel. She's going to go, and she tells her daughters, knowing they're both Moabite girls, hey, why don't you stay here, worship your own God, Go find a husband that worships your God. I'm going back to Yahweh's land. I've heard there's food there. You don't have to come with me. And there was a, a bunch of crying, and it was a big scene. But this is how it went in Ruth chapter 1, verse 12. So here's Naomi. She's a Yahwist. The girls are both Moabites. They belong to a different god. A Moabite would call their god Molech. She says, return, my daughters, go, for I'm too old to have a husband if I said that I had hope. Even if I should have a husband tonight and also bear a son, would you therefore wait until they were grown? She's talking about how they could get a husband from her. Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you. Uh, now, she's the kind of gal that likes pity parties. This book has full of them for her. It's going to be harder on me than you. I don't know that. She says, for the hand of Yahweh has gone forth against me. My God is disciplining me, she says. In verse 14, they lifted up their voices, and they wept again, and Orpah, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and that means she left. She went back to her god, Molech. She went back to her country, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And she goes on to say, where you die, I'll die. What she did was she became a believer in Yahweh. Now she's a proselyte to Judaism. Her being a Moabite girl is not going to be held against her. Now she's uh, going to be an Israelite girl by faith. And so she went back with Naomi. Ruth determined to abandon her gods of Moab and cling to the true God of Judah. We are not told how many uh, sided with their gods and how many uh, converted to Judaism. It was their choice. Perhaps they had to decide uh, financial support for these women and children. It doesn't say. Uh, we are also not told about men remarrying or that they even had that option. And then I want to move down to verses 16 and 17, where we learn the people went forward with divorcing of their foreign wives who refused Yahweh. It says, But the exiles did so, and Ezra, the priest, selected men who were heads of, heads of fathers' households for each of their fathers' households, all of them by name. So they, con they convened on the first day of the tenth month to investigate the matter. 
they finished investigating all the men who had married foreign wives by the first day of the first month. Now, I'm not going to read uh, from verse 18 all the way down to uh, the end because it's just a list of all the people who had sinned that way and agreed to do what they were supposed to do. The fact that divorces took place shows that there were women who were dispersed throughout the Israelite culture who had no use for Yahweh or his salvation. What would that have done to the future of Israel with God? It'll do what it does to every culture that starts out with Jesus. Ignore the issue, and sooner or later, the fact that the spouse you married chose not to worship Jesus makes life miserable for the believer. But this time today, there is no option for divorce on our part. And we'll be looking at that uh, in just a minute. The investigation took three months. Families were torn apart. Ex-spouses leaving must have been a terrible sight. Imagine what God saw when Israel had joined to these foreigners when he had told them not to. They're the ones that chose the heartache. They're the ones that chose to treat people this way, not God. This is not a pro-divorce passage. It is a comment on how important it is to obey God in the first place. What does the New Testament say about the issue of an unequal yoke for us today? Um, Proverbs 28.13 teaches us, the best thing to do is to choose to obey God first and foremost of all. So all of our young people that have never married, this, this is your opportunity to make a right decision, to do the right thing. Don't date somebody that's not a believer. Don't marry somebody who's not a believer thinking that you're going to get them to come to know Christ as Savior. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if they ever will or not. I've seen them not many times. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through 18. Do not be bound, that's our word for yoke, do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness, lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. So God says if you marry an unbeliever, uh, you're going to be living with lawlessness, you're going to be living with a lack of righteousness, and you'll have no deep fellowship. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? You either belong to Christ or you belong to Belial. Uh, they don't get along, why would you? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God, which God says uh, as he dwells in us, our bodies are the temple of God. What, what fellowship is there, what agreement is there between that and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then he says, therefore, come out from among them. Let's get rid of this particular sin. My friends, it is not about, listen, it is not about, in terms of marrying somebody, it is not about color, absolutely not. It's not about race. It is not about ethnicity at all, or how nice or how good-looking someone is, or that they might love you. It is about, is he or she a true believer, or is he or she not a true believer? Don't throw yourself into conflict. Make a rule that you will not even date an unbeliever. You say, yeah, yeah, but, but I love him and he loves me. 
And when you say that, you choose against God and his wisdom and what he wants for your life. And you've already made your marriage something less than what it could be by a long, long ways. Don't throw yourself into conflict. Make a rule. I will not date and I will not marry someone who doesn't know Jesus as Savior. Now, there are people that find themselves married to unbelievers, like the lady that I told you about when we began. She stuck with him because that's what the Bible told her to do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it talks about if you find yourself uh, married to somebody who's not a believer. In verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 7, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. That doesn't mean he becomes a Christian. It means that his presence will not defile the marriage or the children to the point that God won't accept the believers in the family. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, or otherwise your children are unclean, but now they're holy. Thus, they're not able to cause defilement to the Christian. Now, is that okay to do it then? No, it's not okay. That's what it's about. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Now, in Ezra's time, the believers made the decision, I married this person, I've got to let them go. They're the ones that, that started the divorce. In Christ's book for the Christians, it must be the unbeliever that says, I'm not willing to live with you, you God-loving whatever, and I'm out of here. And the Bible says you're called to peace, let them leave. So that's a sanctioned divorce under God. However, it doesn't say that the believer has the right to say, okay, it's over. It's given to the unbeliever. So as long as they're in, you're going to be in. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her husband. Okay, we got that. Yet if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage. Uh, that word is the word for slavery in such cases but you're still bound by law to that person that leaves you, God has called us to peace. There's no, there's no way that it says that you can get remarried after that. Wow. Wow. There's so many 20 and 22-year-old men and women that are divorcing, and, and you're saying to me that once they divorce, they can't ever remarry again? I think that's what the Bible says. That's a long time to be lonely. Maybe you should have thought about that before you married this person that was so great, but hates God. Now, I'm doing my very best to try to get you to see one thing, especially my young folks that I care about very much. Don't date a person that doesn't know Jesus as Savior. I don't care what church they go to. It might be, it might be the best church in the world. I'm not interested in that. I want to know what's happened in here. Only Jesus can change a heart, period. Only Jesus. And you want to be yoked with somebody who loves the same God you love. And then he will use your marriage on a mission for him. Because the physical part of marriage doesn't keep it together. It's the mission you have with God. It's the fact that you have the, the same master. So if I come up to one of my young people and I ask them about the spiritual life of the person they're dating, no one in this room is ever going to answer again, well, they go to the evangelical free church. They're going to tell me whether or not this person really has a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
which is what should happen. Now, I just want you to remember, I didn't write the book, but I happen to believe everything in it. And I believe God knows best for marriages. And what's best is you not be unequally yoked. You'll find yourself tied to a burden you can't bear, and your feet will be dangling in the air like a donkey tied to a wagon. Or you're going to find yourself wanting to pull one direction with God and have your partner pull their weight and find out the camel's bigger than the donkey. Save yourself. Save a lot of trouble in the future. Just don't do it. It's up to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have lost countless ministries and missions to people who defied you and married somebody because they were were religious instead of somebody who was saved. And I pray for my young people, even the little ones who've understood what's being said by you, that they would determine right now they will never date or marry anybody who does not know Jesus as their Savior. This is our request. And it's what our heart wants to do. We thank you for helping us in Jesus' name. Amen.